Let's uh, let's talk about Mother Jones magazine. They do some fine work over there. We'd like to start out um, noting in the current edition of the magazine, uh, they cite Dar Jamal, who's described as a gutsy neophyte and occasional MotherJones.com contributor, who traveled to Iraq to tell the stories of civilians under fire, which he does in his book Beyond the Green Zone: Dispatches from an Unembedded Journalist in Occupied Iraq. Mr. Jamail, of course, has previously appeared on this radio station, not on our show, but uh, Franz Kassing has had him on It's About You, a show, of course, you should be listening to, dear listener, every uh, Monday morning at 8.30. The sidebar about Dar Jamail was part of an article titled Press Pass by Ched Genoways, which noted the case of Sarah Chains, an NPR correspondent in Kandahar, who reported in her memoir, The Punishment of Virtue Inside Afghanistan After the Taliban, in which she describes an astonishing battle that her source in Afghanistan had told her about that led to control of the Kandahar airport. Her report on NPR, over ambient recordings of Afghan fighters gathering weapons, solemnly intoned, Anwar says he lost 55 men during the final assault in the Kandahar airport where many al-Qaeda fighters were dug in. He says they detonated a huge explosion just as his forces attacked, killing 250 of their own fighters. A suicide defense, says Anwar. Five years later, being interviewed by Melissa Block on All Things Considered, Chase admitted there was one nagging problem about the incident. It never happened. The ground battle at the airport uh, was fictional, and it was part of the fiction that, uh, that a warlord, Gull Agan, was concocting with tacit U.S. approval, she said she came to understand, to secure his future reputation. She admits later that it was uh, fairly lame that she did not uh, ask to see any of the bodies of the 250 dead or to see the blast hole from the explosion. Instead, she recounted one person's story. Noted, noted Mother Jones, at least Chase can claim to have been misled. No such justification can be offered in defense of Fox News, according to a stunning new book, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which is coming out in November. This is by Iraq war photographer and reporter Ashley Gilbertson. Evidently, Gilbertson describes how he and another reporter were nearly blown to pieces by errant Air Force bombs in northern Iraq in the late days of the American invasion. They finally withdrew from the front because, as Gilbertson himself concedes, the risk was too high, the payoff too low. And yet when he returned to his hotel, he switched on the television and found Fox's correspondent crouching in front of sandbags wearing a flak jacket and a helmet. He supposedly was on the front lines reporting via a scratchy video phone. He had to whisper, he said. But as Gilbertson studied the screen, he could discern over the correspondent's shoulder and above the sandbags the distinctive architecture of our hotel. Yes, Fox's man in the field was reporting live from a foxhole he had built in his hotel room. The outraged Gilbertson dialed the correspondent's in-house phone and then hung up, 
allowing just enough time to send a single ring over the airwaves. Note of the magazine, the incident with Fox News might seem funny, like a Daily Show correspondent mugging in front of the green screen projection of Baghdad if it weren't so successfully outstripping the satire. Gilbertson wrote, Television reporters rarely travel from their hotels. Often, when a network cuts to live in Iraq, the reporting is from the network's permanent spot on a Baghdad hotel rooftop. Well, I think we're going to have to get uh, uh, the author of Whiskey Tango Foxtrot on this program in the future, or maybe Franz needs to get him on, but someone needs to get this guy on to talk to the KDVS audience. The same issue of the magazine noted that uh, every administration has its share of politically appointed deadwood. And traditionally, after duds like Reagan Interior Secretary James Watt were exposed, the president showed them the door. Not so in the Bush White House, where the duds fall upward. Some notable masters of professional gravity defying were George Tenet, who was awarded the Presidential, who was awarded the presidential Medal of Freedom for his slam dunks on Iraq, Paul Wolfowitz, who went on to shock and awe the World Bank, and Federal Emergency Management Agency head Michael Brownie Brown, who now runs a consulting firm whose specialties include, you guessed it, disaster management. But among the list of people included in the magazine, whose incompetence apparently was no barrier to advancement in the Bush administration, the guy that really caught our eye was Hans A. von Spakovsky. He started out as counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, that was in 2003 to 05, and uh, has devoted much of his legal career to suppressing minority voting rights, according to J. Gerald Herbert, former head of the Justice Department's voting division. Now, having worked for the Bush campaign on the 2000 Florida recount, Van Spakovsky used his post as a top civil rights enforcer to help launch an aggressive campaign to purge voter rolls, a move that, of course, slashes the number of poor and minority voters. On Spakovsky's watch, the Department of Justice unsuccessfully sued to force Missouri to toss voters off the rolls. It was noted that half the career employees in Van Spakovsky's unit quit during his tenure. And uh, the soft landing in store for Mr. Spakovsky? Well, George W. Bush has appointed him to a term on the Federal Election Commission, making him one of the nation's highest election monitors. This has got some of the good people over at Slate.com a little bit worked up, particularly Dahlia Lithwick, who wrote two days ago, Another one for you to file under the Fox Guards the Hen House. Writing Tuesday, Ms. Lithwick noted the Senate Rules Committee votes tomorrow on whether to give Hans A. von Spakovsky a full six-year term on the Federal Elections Commission. For Senate Democrats to even consider allowing someone with Van Spakovsky's background to sit on the independent agency tasked with protecting the integrity of federal elections is beyond incredible. If Von Spakovsky is confirmed, it will be yet more evidence that Democrats have no more regard for the rule of law or the integrity of the Justice Department than Karl Rove does. Von Spakovsky currently sits on the FEC as the result of a recess appointment made by President Bush in January. Before that, he served as counsel to the Assistant Attorney General in the Civil Rights Division at Justice. Van Spakovsky's Senate confirmation hearing last June was noteworthy for many oddities, 
not the least of which was a letter sent to the Rules Committee by six former career professionals in the voting rights section of the Department of Justice. Folks who had worked under both Republican and Democratic administrations for a period that spanned 36 years. The letter urged the committee to reject Van Spakovsky on the grounds that while at DOJ, he was one of the architects of the transformation in the voting rights section from its historic mission to enforce the nation's civil rights laws without regard to politics to pursuing an agenda which placed the highest priority on the partisan political goals of the political appointees which supervise the section. Why was the nation's largest civil rights coalition urging that his confirmation be rejected? Because he was one of the generals in a years-long campaign to use what we know to be bogus claims of runaway, quote, vote fraud, unquote, to suppress minority votes. Von Spakovsky was one of the people who helped melt down and then reshape the Justice Department into an instrument aimed at diminishing voter participation for partisan ends. Slate Magazine referred people to a 2004 article by Jeffrey Tubin that highlighted a change of direction in DOJ's voting section and flagged Von Spakovsky's early involvement with the Voter Integrity Project. Among the numerous accomplishments uh, that Von Spakovsky can take credit for, well, how about approving the Tom DeLay-sponsored redistricting that took place in Texas? That was in mid-census. Uh, part of which was later deemed by the Supreme Court to have violated the Voting Rights Act. And in doing so, Van Spakovsky overrode a 73-page memo written by seven voting rights experts finding that the delay scheme violated the Voting Rights Act by reducing minority voting strength in Texas. At any rate, we could go on and on about this guy, uh, but uh, we would just note, unfortunately, yesterday... He was not recommended by the Senate Rules Committee, but he was passed on to get a full Senate vote. This came evidently after uh, the Democratic Senator Ben Nelson from Nebraska broke party lines to support Spakovsky. Chairwoman of the committee, Dianne Feinstein of California, chose to agree to send all four nominees, two Democrats and two Republicans, to the floor without recommendation. In other words, the committee did not vote to approve Van Spakovsky, but he got through nonetheless. This prompted someone to write uh, a letter to thinkprogressive.org, noting, Senator Feinstein, I understand the desire to show the other side that you're fair, even though they weren't when they were in the majority. But it doesn't do a lick of good. They just see that as weakness. And if they ever get back in the majority again, they'll be just as big a jerks as they were last time. Another person wrote, why don't all those Dems just switch over to being GOPers and everyone will get along just fine? Bush will declare martial law and they'll all be happy. No fuss, no muss. Someone else wrote, Nelson and Feinstein have betrayed us again. They think Petraeus is neat. Number 21 in a series of respected generals that have committed war crimes. All right, and speaking of uh, General Petraeus... We're still marveling at this program over the idea that uh, General Petraeus is going to direct U.S. foreign policy. He was put over in Iraq uh, because his, uh, his proven track record in, in painting a rosy picture of what's going on over there. Well, we don't see that his assessment is reality-based. I mean, this prompted even David Letterman to comment a few weeks back that... Uh, Boy, everyone's talking about the MTV Awards. Did anybody see Britney Spears? They said she appeared sluggish. They said she was glassy-eyed. Sounded to me like someone could use another hour in rehab. Although, you know, General Petraeus, 
thought it went quite well. I don't know. Uh, the, the media is not serving this country well. I look at the, the, the edition of Newsweek from April. Why sanctions are working. Article by Fareed Zakaria. He was explaining at that moment why things were going so splendidly uh, in Iran thanks to our, uh, our sanctions against that government. Well, five months later, it appears that that may have been a little premature. But about the time they were sending General Petraeus back over to Iraq to, uh, to, to basically sell the war to the American public, here's what Newsweek had to say. Under a picture of the general, the article was titled, Brainiac Brigade. Some of the military's finest minds, it said, helped craft the strategy that has produced some signs of good news out of Iraq. But even they don't know if it will work. We're grateful for the fact that they are being somewhat speculative as to whether this is all going to come out well. Of course, when you get past the headlines, you realize this article does actually talk about uh, quite a few relevant items. The article notes that General Petraeus is the man who put together the U.S. Army slash Marine Corps Counterinsurgency Field Manual. That's known as FM-423. There's just one problem, noted the magazine. Iraq doesn't follow the book. The manual highly touted as the basis upon which the surge of U.S. forces would be organized, deals with threats to a functioning government that enjoys broad-based legitimacy. That scarcely is what exists in Baghdad. Anyway, we're happy to note that at least Thomas Friedman seems to be coming around to realizing that, well, things, are just, things just aren't going well in Iraq. This prompted Dan Perkins a couple months ago to write about it in This Modern World, titling the uh, series of cartoons... Thomas Friedman, private eye in Dial M for Mustache. Starts the narrative. The dame had a problem, so she came to me because everybody knows I'm the guy that has all the answers. Woman. My husband's run off. I want you to find him. Friedman. Don't worry. I'm sure he'll be back in the next six months or so. Narrative. For some reason, she didn't want to wait, so I started working my usual sources. So Friedman flies to India and finds a call center manager who says, I've heard about an American woman whose husband ran off, so she started an online dating service, and now she's a trillionaire. Friedman, wow, talk about making lemonade when life hands you lemons. He goes back to the States. You said you knew where my husband was? No, I said I knew the answer, and I do. It's globalization. In this interdependent world, it's the answer to every problem, even yours. And by the way, if you've read Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat and think it had anything worth saying, send us an email at info at radioparallax.com because the preliminary reports we've gotten are... Don't bother. Anyway, I guess an awful lot of what's going on in the world today has to do with, uh, you know, spinning PR. And of course, uh, Doonesbury, you know, is the equivalent, uh, is every bit the equal of Tom Tomorrow... A few weeks back, uh, Duke, Uncle Duke, is running a PR firm with his son, noting they certainly would have handled the uh, Larry Craig situation differently. Said Duke, if we can make genocidal dictators look good, we can certainly turn things around for a cruising senator. Said his son, so dad, what's your first move? Well, I'd have made a fake video of him soliciting female sex. Said his son, of course, a counter-narrative. Posted on YouTube, boom, instant rehab. And uh, speaking of YouTube, I think we have to take a slight diversion into a, a little bit of comedy that someone pasted together uh, uh, at a purported George Bush press conference. Now, we should note, we cannot verify that this is fake. So we're willing to assume that this might be authentic. 
uh, Mr. President, uh, in your recent budget, just to make sure I understand, you're asking for a $50 billion emergency defense supplemental to protect America from zombies. I believe this is the great challenge of the 20, beginning of the 21st century. Zombies who eat brains, just so I know we're on the same page here. That's, that's, that's what they do. That's what they've said they want to do. They have objectives. With all due respect, Mr. President, are you sure this wasn't a, a movie you saw? I mean, why? Because they're real. Yeah, but why is that? And it's a danger to the American people. It's a danger to your children, Jim. Sorry, my name is Barry. Uh, Chen. No, uh, Barry. Ed. It's Barry. Just, just think of blueberry or strawberry. That way you'll always remember it. Uh, thanks, Ed. Um, they are a direct threat to the United States, and, and I'm going to keep talking about it. The zombies. You say they're eating our brains. They need to be eating U.S. beef. It's good for them. Okay. They'll like it. For the sake of argument, even in the movies, zombies seem to move really, really slowly. Why couldn't we just outrun them? If we leave, they follow us. Right. But really slowly. I mean, shouldn't we be focusing more on bin Laden? But they're dangerous. And I can't put it any more plainly, they're dangerous. Right. Does this explain reports that um, you attacked people who were on the White House tour? I knew this was going to be an explosive issue. Yeah, you, you removed their heads. I wanted to remove even more. So, over the months, you decapitated 11 tourists you now say were all zombies. I thought it was interesting how you started your question over the months, I think you said, over the last months. Forget the time period. It's not the time span that concerns us. Let me us. finish, please, sir. I'm on a roll here. And uh, they have made it abundantly clear what they want. Human brains. Because you see, what they're going to try to do is kill as many innocent people as they can. You're claiming the heat of the moon causes the dead to rise from their graves and walk among us? And, and so, uh, yeah, it could be a bloody, it could be a, it could be a very difficult August, and I fully understand. Is there any proof? any scientific evidence of an actual biological difference between these zombies and, say, just slow-moving tourists? Sir? Mr. President? They are a threat to your children, David. Anyway, in the minutes that we have left to us, let's, let's, let's continue to talk about SPIN, PR Masters. In fact, let's go back to Radar Magazine for their article by Marcus Barham on Hell's Lobby. Noted Mr. Barham, lobbying has never been a game for the morally squeamish, but it takes a special breed of huckster to spin, say, genocide or shill for the world's most brutal tyrants. Until recently, the dark lord of this realm was Edward von Kloberg III, the flamboyant caped PR legend who declared, shame is for sissies, and proudly listed Saddam Hussein and Nikolai Ceausescu as clients. By the way, when Saddam gassed the Kurds, von Kloberg framed it as a blow to Islamic fundamentalism. Although von Kloberg's dramatic death leap from the parapet of a Roman castle in 2005 marked the end of an era, a handful of Washington's 35,000 registered lobbyists have emerged as worthy successors to his throne. He then lists five winners in this category of successors. Let's start off with Mark Edmund Clark. He's an urbane former professor with a soft spot for lunatic heads of state. Clark made a living during the late 90s penning articles defending the interest of Serbia, then helmed by Slobodan Milosevic. 
Since Milosevic's death, Clark has turned his attention to Iran and its Holocaust-denying president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. It is Clark who drafted Ahmadinejad's famous 19-page letter to George W. Bush, as well as his speeches to the UN last year. Then there's Gerald Cassidy, who's described as a hot-tempered Uber rep with a taste for fine apparel and a talent for gaming the system. He is described as the genius behind congressional earmarks. He spawned a pork-feeding frenzy that cost taxpayers tens of billions of dollars. And when a disgraced Jack Abramoff was booked in 2004 for bilking Indian tribes, Cassidy opened up his teepee. He's currently the top flack for Equatorial Guinea, which has been ruled for by three decades by a vicious despot who thinks he's a deity. In return for his $1.6 million a year retainer, Cassidy has arranged sit-downs with congressmen and journalists, including two New York Times reporters, in an effort to bring the hellish dictatorship some good buzz. Then there's Herman Cohn of Cohn and Woods International, who uh, is described as someone who is not only a client of, of Zaire's dictator Mobutu Sese Siko, but also a friend. He was subsequently hired by the Republic of Congo's repressive leadership in an absurd effort to win them a Nobel Peace Prize. Mr. Cohn's current star client is Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe, noted for sending North Korean-trained shock troops on a rampage that left 20,000 civilians dead as he's bankrupting the country. For his part, Cohn worked his magic on Capitol Hill to delay the Zimbabwe Democracy Act, which sought to make U.S. aid contingent upon reforms that would curb Mugabe's governing style. And finally, Richard T. Hines of RTH Consulting. He was the youngest Republican ever elected to the South Carolina legislature. Hines led a group dedicated to honoring the memory of his hero. That would be Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Hines is really my favorite because he has lobbied for the Cambodian People's Party, which was headed by former Khmer Rouge officials and led to a bloody coup in 1997. For his $500,000 fee, Hines penned a series of editorials in the Washington Times arguing against war crime trials for former Khmer Rouge leaders, while urging U.S. aid for the Cambodian People's Party. I think these guys in real life far outdo Uncle Duke's uh, fictional character in Doonesbury. Unbelievable. Anyway, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. only a paper moon hanging over a cardboard sea but wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me it is only a canvas sky sailing over a muslin tree but it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me without your love it's a honky-tonk parade without your love it's a melody played on a penny arcade It's a Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me 